1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like foxes,
2: outrage and deafness. Ooh, we should do all of those, Sam. I think we should do... I say that every time, but we should definitely do that. Or... We've done some stuff on deafness before, haven't we? We have. We wrote Uh, a a chapter on deafness in one of our books, and I was rereading it the other day for something, and it is Mm. excellent... Uh, th- yeah. which must mean that you wrote it <laughs> I think <laughs> didn't
1: we have <laughs> accounts of um, people from uh,
2: Hiroshima we um, did. who'd become deaf we from, did yeah, that's right. We did. Yeah. Uh, and there's loads of great stuff well, deafness in World War 2 uh, is r- really really good uh, outrage I think would be excellent as with yes. foxes or yes, yes, we yes, could yes. do wine the sign and to resign decline <laughs> the shine and the recline I think we should do reclining Ooh. OK, that uh, I'm, I'm not going to set us that challenge, though, because for the moment we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of pockets... Yes, Pockets is in fact all about gender and power, restriction and privacy, memories and archives, repositories and convenience, crime and corruption, freedom and emancipation. In fact, I listened to the history of Pockets quite recently on a walk back from the station and it was excellent. I don't normally listen... To us back because I find it very difficult to listen. But actually, I forgot it was me talking, and, uh, <laughs> and actually, it's quite interesting. It's one of that?
1: our earliest episodes, and it genuinely, is a very, very good one. It the is all yeah. that the history
2: of bees. The history of bees is, in fact, yes, bees do have a history as well. It's in fact all about medieval beekeeping, beeswax candles, and changes in medieval religious practices. It's also about superstitious practice of telling the bees whereby individuals inform the bees of births and deaths in the family to prevent bad luck. It's also all about the usefulness of bees in medieval Muscovy. Who knew, Sam Willis? Who knew? Fascinating stuff. Let me just say of my fellow
1: presenter, he is a man to whom you would tell your darkest secrets. It would be entrusted in his the secret pocket of his little heart, where he keeps all of his friends' secrets. Um, he is Professor Extraordinaire of early modern British history at Plymouth University. It's James
2: Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell to co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a secret related historian, I can divulge no more. I can say no more. <laughs> <laughs> the secret oh, lies with me. You will have to guess. Oh, go on then. <laughs> You've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. <laughs> so that we're doing secrets, Sam.
1: Yes, yes. Um, I'm quite surprised we haven't done this. I do suspect we might have already done it. So this might be the second episode we've done on secrets. I'm
2: I, not sure. I think we've done secret codes before. Oh, okay. And we've done right. invisible ink and all that sort of thing. But this came to me, this was my idea, because a couple of weeks ago I drove up north via the M5 and the tremendous Gloucester services, which I know is one of our favourite places, Sam, Um We And I was going to a place near Kidderminster called Harvington Hall, which is an incredible 16th century recusant house full of secret places. And in fact, they describe themselves as the House of Secrets. And I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. But I was superbly hosted by the people who run the place. Deacon Paul and Phil, who is the house manager, was given an amazing tour of the property. If you haven't been to Harvington Hall, why not? You have not lived. Um, This is the most incredible historical experience and you've got two people there, Deacon Paul and Phil, the house manager, who are so passionate about history and bring history to life in a way that I haven't seen Before You should definitely all go. And I will tell you all about why uh, in a little bit. Good.
1: I'm looking forward to that very much. I've hugely enjoyed um, doing this for for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, uh, because I was weirdly um, doing some other work on on invasions, which is something I made a TV programme on, but was doing some extra stuff on invasions. And there were a couple of um, brilliant... um, Invasions and certainly uh, military-related events where secrecy uh, was very important and plays an important part. But I realised that actually um, there was a, a fabulous link, which which took me from uh, the Second World War to some uh, late medieval Indian nursery rhymes. Ooh. How, <laughs> so, did that, um, how did that happen? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not sure. It just sort of it happened by the magic of my typing, and then me suddenly realising I was I was actually. Um, in disguise reading about the same thing so first off um it made me think about uh secrecy and the, the difficulty of keeping secret something enormous yes um so often you have these small secrets of course james but uh, very large secrets and actually th- this was also sorry for being a bit mumbly here uh, linked with um i was i was thinking about how as historians you access secrets so um secret archives and people lifting access to archives which is particularly relevant if you're studying things like mi5 and mi6 it made me think james you, you
2: come across stuff which is interesting because uh, access has only suddenly been granted yes all the time all mm. the time and also think you know chancing on things that are kept secret um so you know discovering secrets and things that are you know things that are written in in secret codes and secret languages, and being able to to sort of decode that invisible ink. I mean, I, when I came across certain collections of of letters like that, it, it really sort of opened up a whole rich seam of work, yeah. um, which yeah. we, which we talked about a little bit in the in the past. But imagine yourself as a Victorian um, sort of manuscript hunter going around. Victorian private houses or country houses and going through the archives and suddenly discovering things um the Tresham family for example the Tresham family papers that was a recusant family and during the elizabethan period they had a special uh sort of chamber put up in the in the house in which they wrapped all of their manuscripts and secret documents wrapped them in a sort of cloth and then put them in wax and they were preserved there and then you know imagine being that person who discovered that is absolutely incredible uh, a whole collection yeah. of family papers um that were unearthed so yes yes all the time um maybe think about um, also my relevance to this is that there,
1: there are some uh episodes and operations particularly in the second world war where there were major major secrets kept and i i don't know at what stage it became common knowledge so take for example operation fortitude which is the kind of mind bogglingly broad hoax which was deployed in the um the northeast and the east prior to the launch of d-day so what happened is that the everyone knew the allies were going to invade northern france it's probably going to be around calais only 30 miles or so from from the coastline um, so it, it made uh, perfect sense to be there um, whereas, in fact, they'd secretly made the decision to attack Normandy, which is quite a long way away, about 100 miles away, further south. It's much broader there, the English Channel as well. So not the obvious answer. But to encourage the German belief that um, Calais, or even perhaps um, further north, Norway, um, was going to be attacked, they they created Operation Fortitude, which, which was multiple layers of uh trickery—I think you could describe them. Um, one of the, uh, the the cleverest was the creation of two entire phantom armies, fake armies, um, made out of silhouette people and inflatable ships and inflatable tanks and um, and plywood planes. And they were put in one in Scotland, the other in the southeast of England. Um, I thought it was crazy. I was reading about this. Um, I didn't know they had inflatable landing craft. They had things called big bobs. Um, which were made out of canvas stretched over a steel frame which had been set on 45-gallon oil drums. I saw some um, aerial photographs of these recently. They're absolutely amazing. Anyway, so this is an example of a secret that was very well kept within the military sphere. And then I thought of, well, there's got to be a really good example, one that wasn't well kept. And um, as so often I think back to the work I have done before, and it made me think about uh, my book on the American Revolution, uh, when I wrote about Benedict Arnold, who's one of the famous, exo- most famous examples of military treachery that exists. So he's a mili- he's an American military officer. He serves in the Revolutionary War, um, and he fights with distinction. He rises up the ranks He becomes a major general. But then in 1780, he defects. He's had enough. Mm. Um, and there's been a lot of rowing. Uh, about why this suddenly happens um and it does make him one of the most difficult people to understand I mean, he's caught I should say that he um he he's thick as thieves with a chap called a major andre he's caught he's got some secret papers i think hidden in his shoe uh which um Point their finger at Arnold. He's basically going to hand over an entire American military base at West Point, which is now one of the, the most um, symbolic of all military places, up the Hudson there. And uh, these papers, uh, which I also believe were written in part in code and invisible ink, or certainly the ones he'd been handing to the British uh, were Points the finger at Arnold. Arnold finds out that he is about to get arrested and he flees to a British ship which is at anchor in the Hudson. So he sides, and then he starts fighting for the British. Um, The point about Arnold is it's quite hard to understand why he does this. And I've got quite an interesting quote here from a modern historian. Among the hardest human beings to understand in American history, did he become a traitor because of all the injustice he suffered, real and imagined, at the hands of the Continental Congress and his jealous fellow generals because of the constant agony of two battlefield wounds in an already gout-ridden leg, from psychological wounds received in his Connecticut childhood when his alcoholic father squandered the family's fortunes? Or was it a kind of extreme midlife crisis, swerving from radical political beliefs to reactionary ones, a change accelerated by his marriage, this is important, to the very young, very pretty and very Tory Peggy Shippen. He goes on to say, this is a historian called W.D. Wetherill, that the shortest explanation for his treason is that he married the wrong person. Now, this is all very interesting indeed. And it made me think, oh, hang on a minute. What's happened here is that this historian has managed to blame the woman in the story. So here we've got Benedict Arnold defecting to the British, unable to keep his country's secrets because of his wife right and that should uh, raise a few questions about what exactly is going on here and it is at this point james that i realized there was a wonderful link with this fabulous um indian Uh, nursery rhyme or fairy tale which I come across called How a Woman Could Not Keep a Secret. I'm going to read that in a minute because it's truly brilliant but uh, it does reveal a bit of casual uh, misogyny in India which is perhaps not surprising in the kind of 15th, 16th and 17th centuries Um, but I then realised that when I was reading about Benedict Arnold's failure to keep his secrets and actually modern historians are still blaming his wife rather than him. So there we are. It's all about female power and who gets the blame?
3: so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch
0: 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees promo for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com
2: that'll be the casual misogyny that basically just soaks through uh, most yeah. of the world um, awful yeah dreadful um I want to take us in a completely different direction, back to what I was talking about earlier on, and this stunning Elizabethan manor house, uh, Harvington Hall. Um, you should definitely go um, because it, it is it's spectacular in so many ways. It's the kind of house that you you go to and you you fall in love with, and this is what this is what Deacon Paul and Phil um, were were claiming about it, and it's certainly true and it's really interesting in all sorts of ways you go along to it and the first thing that happens is you pull up in the car park there's a sort of walled um garden that's been turned into a car park by the parish the local parish church at harvington so there's some interesting sort of gravestones there to go and and look at um but the first thing that you notice is that the house is entirely surrounded by a moat and it's on an artificial island and the building itself can be dated back to around the 13th century meaning that it's it pretty pretty old um the the main sort of part of the house is 14th century Uh, And you can see this when you peel back, when they've peeled back the sort of layers of brick, you can see the early uh, 14th century construction uh, work uh, there. So that kind of cob, um, uh, wattle and daub kind of uh, construction. And then you've got a really interesting development. Um, The history, it then passes into the Earls of Warwick Um, in the 14th century and then it is sold to a wealthy lawyer, Sir John Packington, and it's when his great-nephew Humphrey Packington inherits the estate in 1578 that you see the sort of main building work taking place. It's part of that sort of late Elizabethan building campaign that went on and that's really where you get these two additional wings Uh, put on Um, though although those were demolished in 1700 so we don't have the original footprint but you can certainly reconstruct it and we stood in the garden and had a look at the outside and you can actually work out precisely where it went the really interesting thing about it is that it as an elizabethan house it was owned by catholics and i'll come to that in a in a little bit because that really is what connects us to the secrets now, one of the really interesting things walking round the house and I recommend rather than taking yourself around, take one of the tours if you are lucky enough to get Phil, you have lucked out as they say we had a tour uh from him that lasted over two hours, and I came away just just stunned by the place. On all of the walls, what they've uncovered is really rare Tudor paintings. They are absolutely extraordinary. Um, all over the corridors, on the ceilings, in the rooms, I mean it really brings the house to life. I mean, imagine a lot of national trust properties that you might go around nowadays and they 've all got the the wood paneling well this is there is some of that, but a lot of that has been stripped back, and a lot of the walls are are bare and have the original um Tudor paintings on them which is which is is stunning to see, and you get a sense of how these houses would have been presented in the 16th century but back to what i was saying about the fact that uh that the packingtons were catholic humphrey was catholic at a time when there were harsh laws in elizabethan england towards the end of elizabeth's reign for catholics so if you if you refused to attend the, the, the anglican church service on sundays you were a you were you were um described as a recusant so somebody who refused obdurately refused having been told not to at least outwardly conform and if you refused it cost you were fine 12 pence a week which increased to about 20 pounds a month which in 16th century terms was an awful lot of money the other thing that's really important to remember is that catholicism was outlawed. So priests from 1585 were not allowed to set foot in England. Now the big difference between Anglicanism or Protestantism, which is a religion that is predicated on the Bible and reading the Bible, um, the difference between that and Catholicism is that in order for the Catholicism to work you need a priest to administer mass and the sacrament. And so what you have is a is priests on English soil who aren't allowed to be there, and they basically need some way to be kept secret and to hide as they make their way around the local area. And this is what is so secret about Harvington Hall, because there are there are many priest holes in the property many of which are thought to be the handiwork of the master carpenter Nicholas Owen and we wrote a little bit about Nicholas Owen in our uh, histories of the unexpected book in the chapter on holes because we looked at at some priest holes there particularly at court and court in Warwickshire where there's been some really interesting uh, work done uh, and some digital reconstructions but the interesting thing about about this property is they think although you can't necessarily tell but they think almost 100% that some of the some of the hides the priest holes were built by Nicholas Owen uh, who worked from about 1588 until his own capture and death in the Tower of London in 1606 he's a master uh real master carpenter and I just want to talk to you talk you through some of these uh some of these some of these holes um there is one that is, we there's a wonderful kitchen uh in the property and a wonderful kitchen that has a well actually inside the house but that's not where the priest hole is instead the priest hole is pie or the pied is by the bread oven and so this would have been pretty hot uh, for the priest to be hiding in but apparently what they did was they put all sorts of layers um, a be between the where, the where the hole was and the oven so that it, w- it wouldn't get too hot in there. Um, they date this probably to the early 1590s Uh, and you get to it through a privy off the south room uh, and you enter via a little trap door and now they've got it all opened up so that you can go round the back and you can actually peep in. You can't see it from the bread oven itself but you go round and it's all opened up and it is a tiny little space. I mean, it's it's about... It's five foot deep and by by about... um, Two foot seven inches and three foot nine inches so it's not the kind of place that you'd want to spend very much time in uh at all one of the most extraordinary um priest holes in there it was discovered you talked earlier on about um it being about things being discovered by chance but a a Victorian schoolboy uh was basically playing in one of the secret rooms and passages up in the um up in the house in 1894 and he was pushing against one of the beams and suddenly the beams swung wide open And in between it was, behind it, was a, basically a a hiding space about eight foot long, three foot wide and five feet high. And this was off one of the the sort of study type type rooms full of sort of book lining. And you had to go up a sort of set of stairs to get to it. But it's absolutely extraordinary. Another uh, secret hiding place that they had was in the, the, large attic which is a hide there uh which is thought to be the largest priest hide in england and it's quite sizable i mean you could really sort of hunker down in there for for quite a while Uh, it's about 12 foot wide 17 foot long and about seven foot at its highest point so you could actually stand there again it's it's Upper false chimney which is located in the marble room uh, and you climb through a, a trap door where you walk through a, a sort of um, a walkway to the safety of the hide there is also a really interesting secret space that is around the great staircase now what the, the conjecture is that Nicholas Owen would have come into the property and he would have basically pretend he would have made um, the the staircase. And so anyone wanting to come along and see if there are any priests hiding would come in and say who is this you know handyman you know do it this carpenter what what's he working on and you see him working on the staircase over a significant period of time and then he uses that as a cover to build some of the other hides and just off the staircase there's a sort of little set of three or so steps as you come off one of the corridors and you walk down there and the, I think it's the middle step, the middle fl- middle step board um, just pivots one way, and it shows this um, basically a secret hiding place. and what the family would have done. Was they would have hidden the sort of family jewels in there, so anyone coming round and sort of trying to find any hiding priests would stumble across that and say, "Ah, oh, the family is obviously using this as a sort of, uh, you know, a Tudor safe," uh, and would look no further. And then the double blind is basically that you pull the you pull the woodwork the other way and it opens up another chamber that is behind that is the secret the secret sort of hiding place now one of the things that I think is amazing about this property not only the sort of interesting stories that it tells not only the brilliant tours that you can have it's in amazing landscape but it's also the spectacular entertainments that they put on that evening um, they were putting on a reenactment of a clandestine Catholic mass. When when I arrived at the property, it was just laid out with hundreds and hundreds of candles. And at night, they would have all been lit, so you would have wandered around the house in candlelight. You can go along, I think it happens annually, you go along, There's there's cider, there's food, and you follow... ...up into one of the attic rooms where you see a clandestine Catholic mass being given... ...and then the priest hunters come and the priest gets sort of captured, and the whole thing is sort of, you, you observe the whole thing, the family at prayer, the priest sort of doing um, the mass, the priest hunters coming, uh, and then, so you're actually experiencing this sort of reenactment living history, which I think is absolutely extraordinary, and as I said, I have not seen history brought to life like this anywhere, in the country, so I think you should all go along uh, and visit Harvington Hall. So there we are Sam, we should go, it's incredible
1: Yeah, no, it sounds fabulous and uh, I'd urge you all to go along um, I'm going to now cut to India hmm. as you do um, and this Cut is to India for a, a really a, a fabulous book um, it's by Charles Swinnerton from the Indian Nights' Entertainment or Folk Tales from the Upper Indus Uh, published in London in 1892. Now, the introduction tells us um, how uh, authentic this is, how the translations from the Punjabi of the Upper Indus are as literal and as idiom and freedom of expression would permit – and it goes on to claim how important these folk tales are and that they're of the highest possible antiquity that they've passed down from age to age, from generation to generation. They've been faithfully handed down by people rude and unlearned who have preserved them through all their vicissitudes of devastating wars, changes of rule and faith, and centuries of oppression. That Stories like these are essentially the tales of the people. And uh, I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. I think it's a wonderful introduction. There is an in Indian fairy tale called How a Woman Could Not Keep a Secret. Once upon a time there was a certain weaver who became so indigent and poor that he went to a grain seller and borrowed 40 rupees. If I do not return within a year, said he, take my house and all it contains, they are yours. So it's it's a classic kind of mortgage tale here. This is, he's you know he's 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 got something here, uh, but he's going to risk his house if it all goes wrong. So the weaver wanders off into the hills, and in a lonely place he saw a light. Going to it, he found there a man sitting on the ground. He sat by his side, but the man never spoke a word. At last, the weaver said, "Why, man, can't you speak? Say something at least." Do you not see I'm a stranger? My fee, answered the man, is 20 rupees. Hand me 20 rupees and I will speak. So the weaver counts out his 20 rupees. He gives them to this uh, curious man uh, who is sitting on his own. And then the weaver eagerly waits to see the results. But all the man said was, "'Friend, when four men give you advice, take it.'" So the weaver's a bit fed up with this. He's only got 20 rupees left and he wants a bit more advice. So he says, "'If I ask another question, will I lose that as well?' But um, the weaver's curiosity was very great, and he counted out his balance. Hands it to the man and says, speak again. So by this stage, right, he's already spent his money. The man speaks a second time. When he says this, he says, whatever happens to you, even if you rob, steal, or murder, never breathe a word of it to your wife. So at this stage, the weaver, right, he's given away all his money and he's bound by a secret that he must never tell something to his wife. So the weaver sets off. He's trudging along at the side of a river where there are four men sitting on the ground and they're sitting around a corpse. Um, Where are you going? Said him. He said, well, I'm going down to that village across the river. Do an act of charity, said they. We are carrying this body to the river. Take it up as you are going that way and throw it in for us. So an interesting sideline here. This is traditional Hindus um, using the river, the sacred Indus to take away Take away their dead. Um, interesting, I found out a bit about this. Um, it was only really used for the bodies of children or unwed girls or those who died from infectious diseases, which is one of the explanations why um, there were so many dead in Indian rivers uh, during the COVID pandemic. Um, and the the amount that were buried by rivers or just left to float in rivers um, made people realise that the official number of dead in India was a very, very, very low compared to the actual number of dead, um, simply by counting the number of bodies in the rivers. Anyway, I digress. What happens is these people put the corpse down and off they go. The weaver picks him up and then as he goes along he feels this this horrid kind of poking sensation something sharp in the name of god he said what is this corpse doing are these knives or needles so he can't stop to lay the corpse down because it was so fat and he'd never be able to pick it up again so he carries on all the way to the river drops it on the bank and then finds the things that have been poking him in the legs are little bags filled with diamonds so what he does is he takes them home and um, we we then have this stage where now he, we've got theft to deal with as well. So he turns off at home. Um, he, he, he pays off the man who'd originally lent him his 40 rupees. And he's got an absolute fortune. He buys himself a nice horse, a nice saddle. He hires servants. He's got nice clothes. And I love this line. He lives on roast fowl and rice pudding every day. I think I could live on roast fowl and rice pudding every day. But then what happens is that there's a guy in the village who notices his friend has got a bit wealthy, and he wants to know why. So he sends his wife to the weaver's wife to try and find out. Now, the wife says that she doesn't know, and she tries to get the weaver to tell him. Where did you get the money? He says, no, I can't tell you. Um, And then he says, the best thing you could do is not tease me, stop asking asking me, because if you, if I tell you the secret, it will be told everywhere. And for women are like sieves, is the phrase here. The next morning, he um, goes out and uh, he finds his wife asleep. He tells her to get up and cook his breakfast. Um, she refuses. What kind of husband are you? She says, Because you don't tell me anything. You treat me like a child. Best for you not to know, he says. Yes, but tell me, she said, where did you get your money? No word will pass my lips. Well, he says, when I was on my travels, I was told that if I drank half a pint of mustard oil in the morning when I got up, I would see treasure everywhere. So this is a really interesting stage in this fairy tale. So he's lied to his wife. He hasn't told her the truth. He's made up this story about the mustard oil. What happens is that... His wife then tells immediately um, uh, one of her friends that if they all drank half a pint of mustard oil, they would see treasure everywhere. Um, And so he tells her to give her husband and each of her six children half a pint each of mustard oil. And in the morning they would go out and um, search for treasure so she feeds her six children and her husband this mustard oil she uh, runs up in the morning says go up go up uh, look for treasure but guess what happens they're all dead uh, the mustard <laughs> oh. oil has has killed them so the uh, this is the children and the husband of the weaver's wife's friend so the weaver's told this lie to his wife she has then spilt the lie to her friend and they have all died So um, it's quite an extraordinary story and it ends here. The Weaver's wife says, well, I expect that my friend was carrying on with some low fellow, i.e. that she was having an affair and not to be interfered with. She got rid of her husband and children. So to protect the fact that she'd spilt these secrets, she then claims that her friend had actually murdered her husband and her children. So what we've got here is this woman who's eventually she's hanged and that ends the story and all of the trouble having been caused by a woman who could not keep a secret. That's how it ends, where, of course, if you read the story properly, you'll discover that actually all of this trouble is caused by a credulous man who uh, believes what he's been told by a man sitting alone under a tree, and then by uh, by that same man lying to his wife. Not just lying, but in a way that may very easily have ended in death. This was a lie about the mustard oil. So we've got irresponsible learning, a bit of gross negligence. And yet, in this story, all of the trouble is... Attributed to one woman who could not keep a secret. So there we are. Really fascinating story, and it's all to do with casual misogyny from
2: ancient India. Oh, and if our listeners wanted to track this down, Sam, just remind us what the what the the author and the title is. It is. Indian
1: Nights Entertainment or Folk Tales from the Upper Indus writ, uh, edited by Charles Swinnerton S W Y W mm. N E R T O N, uh, London 1892 um, it's a really really fabulous book Ooh, I, I shall
2: I shall check that out myself, Sam Willis. Um, so I was going to do two things, but I think we don 't have time for both uh, i 've talked a lot in the past about secret codes and secret correspondence we 've we 've talked about invisible inc we 've talked about codes and ciphers and how they have a really interesting history from the ancient world all the way through um to the present day. Um, we've talked about micro dots in prisons and secret codes like that we've talked about smuggling letters we've talked about the casket letters we've talked about letters uh, or secret messages put inside eggs in fact in our Tudor show that we toured a few years ago we actually performed that I'm not going to talk about that but I could talk about that an infinitum. What I'm going to talk about, however, is secret hiding places within the household. And we looked at these a little bit when we talked about shoes. Because there are such things that archaeologists call spiritual middens. So these are secret hiding places within the house um, that have superstitious meanings attributed to them. Now the reason I'm interested in these at the moment is because I'm really I'm writing up a chapter uh, on glove in the glove book uh, that looks at the spiritual. Um, superstitious beliefs that survive relating to gloves and this practice of selecting personal objects with ritual associations and hiding them in buildings usually in in chimneys or in upper parts of houses such as loft spaces voids above ovens this was a current throughout the 17th through to the 19th century across Britain and was related to much earlier practices throughout the world connected to foundation sacrifices, so, under you know, build under building foundations, folklore, magic. Um, I'm going to pronounce this um, apototropaic uh, which means evil averting practices uh, as people sought to protect their physical boundaries from malign intervention, from evil spirits, even protecting them against, against witchcraft and there's evidence for the relatively widespread nature of this that we can see in theological writers like the Cambridge Puritan divine William Perkins who lived between 1556 and 1602 who advised the use of prayer rather than placing prophylactic charms around the household. For, he writes, for Satan contenteth not himself to have manifested his malice in afflicting men's persons, but also enlargeth the same to the molestation of the places where they dwell, by infecting the air and such like. The only effectual means to remedy this evil is the sanctification of the places of our habitation. Look as we are wont to sacrifice sacrifice our meat and drink by God's word and by prayer and thereby procure his blessing upon his own ordinance for our refreshing. So in like manner we may sanctify the places of our abode and thereby both procure the blessing which we want and avoid many curses and dangers which otherwise fall upon us. So if you have a look at, uh, um, at places where they were secreted around buildings chimneys windows doorways thresholds these were viewed as portals between the natural world of the household and the supernatural world outside its walls and collections of personal objects were thought to guard these entry points and clothing is a central part of spiritual middens now leather shoes survive in their hundreds and if you go to Northampton uh, leather museum, a wonderful museum that I've visited recently. Um, they, All sorts of shoes were found there by archaeologists, they are detailed, you can see them, and also a striking number of gloves survive uh, as part of these deposits. Now the prevalence of gloves among everyday items deposited has been noted uh, by various scholars as special deposits and ritual activity in early modern England. So we see Examples of gloves, mittens, gauntlets surviving as deposits in about 10 properties sampled in a study from the 15th to the 18th century and they range geographically from Suffolk, Norfolk, Oxfordshire, Somerset, Hampshire, Surrey, Cambridgeshire, Northamptonshire. Two gloves, for example, were discovered at a farm in Great Ashfield in Suffolk, one under a beam, the other under the floor, which may have been connected to building work, connected to the replacement of the parlour and the property during the 17th century. Another is found among an assortment of objects, which include a boy's shoe, a sparrow, pigeon bones, wooden dowels, a needle, wooden trays and a staff of office, which were all tucked into a little space between the main bedroom wall and the chimney stack of a timber farm in Meddlesham Green in Suffolk. Um, there were, another example has two gloves which were discovered again in a Norfolk farm among a collection of family shoes, breeches and a mouse and another example includes a glove a child's shoe and a ball discovered between the lathe and plaster work so really really quite interesting some of it may be that these um, these objects were already worn out and so they were quite easy to part with and if we have a look at the sort of quality of the leather we can see that that that's there but some of them were put there because of their important properties because they were connected to an individual and there's a wonderful uh, uh, example that survives of a mother who has obviously taken her own glove and her child's glove and placed them in one of these spiritual middens in order to scare off or ward off evil and one of the things is that because the the Glove, rather like shoes, it tends to sort of absorb the owner 's bodily fluids and smell, in other words, the sweat they they provide a very sensate manifestation of the human body and this is a, a phrase used by a scholar Sarah Randalls uh, in describing this so basically, you pick items like that because you want the smell of the wearer to linger on them. And you know sweaty, sweaty hands placed in gloves would contain that sense, and so the reason that you put this in a in a, a spiritual midden is in order to attract the malevolent spirits to come to those and obsess about those in that secret space and not come into the household. So there we are, Sam, secrecy and gloves, who would have thunk it?
1: Amazing, um, I, I think secrets is a, has got a lot of legs. Actually. I think it has a lot of legs. We have not I done... think you could do an entire podcast on the podcast series on the history of secrets. I
2: think you could. We haven't done state secrets. We haven't done what's going on at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, Donald Trump oh. keeping state secrets uh, and getting into uh, seemingly a lot of hot water over it. Yeah, wonderful stuff very much job, guys I think we might come back with an episode part two on
1: secrets I'd like to do that excellent um, uh, thank you for listening do please follow us on social media I'm at Dr Sam Willis and if you're interested in maritime and naval history the history of the sea please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast
2: and you can follow me on Twitter uh, at James Dable you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod check us out on Instagram and Facebook come and befriend us there and also check out our webpage historiesoftheunexpected.com where you can buy signed copies of all our books which make the most exquisite Christmas presents for every member of your family. In fact, (laughs) buy multiple copies. Also, if you want to help us uh, support this podcast, um, head over to patreon.com and our site there, Histories of the Unexpected. Uh, Anything that you can do to help us, uh, very gratefully received. Uh, In the meantime, uh, we'll see you soon. Absolutely. Cheerio, guys. Bye-bye.